All right, welcome to the Lion's Guide podcast, where we take on topics in performance and personal growth by exploring the success stories of our guests and the lessons they've learned. We interview other subject matter experts as well as review books and other resources to help us all establish clarity, build our courage, and lead the way. I'm your host, Dale Walls, founder of Lion's Guide, and on this episode, I've got Mr. Ben Durbin. And Ben discovered mindfulness and meditation 25 years ago while seeking methods to enhance his performance in military training. After completing multiple combat deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan, Ben turned to the power of meditation, breathwork, and yoga to heal his mind, body, and relationships. By combining mindfulness with yoga, that's yoga, yoga, (laughs) with yoga breathing practices, uh, he created a framework that helped him heal from the cumulative effects of combat and post-traumatic stress. His practice, informed by his 27-year military career that includes many tours, within a naval special warfare community during wartime. Ben teaches uh, mindful performance, yoga, and breathwork, and is passionate about serving others in their journey to heal and perform at peak levels in all aspects of life. So on this episode with Ben, I really kind of just explore his journey in finding mindfulness and bring it into his life and how it helped him overcome, you know, fear and anxiety and and is now just really a part of his everyday practice that's helping keep him focused and present and aware. Uh, So a lot of value, you know, in this conversation, I always learn a lot with Ben and talking about this stuff. And I learned even more doing this episode with it. So I'm sure you will too. That's why I wanted to get him on. So um, if you like the sound of that, before we get started, hit that subscribe button now so you don't miss any of our other great guests and content. You know, this podcast is always is sponsored by Lion's Guy, which is my company to help you break through and find your potential. You know, if you're stuck in a rut or you want to get better or you just are a growth-minded individual, uh, go out to lionsguide.com. You know, I got a free uh, member community area. Uh, it's no cost to you. You get access to all kinds of exclusive content, such as uh, yet-to-be-released podcast episodes. Uh, I've got reading lists out there. We've been putting on a lot of uh, live virtual training events. Um, you know, we've got a private group to engage with other growth-minded members and a whole lot more. So uh, joining the pride is free and I'm putting it all together again to help you be the true leader of your life. So check it out. Go to lionsguide.com and join today. With that all said, let's start the show. Welcome to another episode of Alliance Guy Podcast. And today we have Mr. Ben Durbin, who is on the tail end of his uh, 27-year military career, which we'll chop in, we'll jump into a little bit. Uh, we got, uh, and but Ben's had multiple combat deployments, but he teaches mindful performance with yoga, breath work, and uh, Ben and I met. Uh, he came on and did a uh, Lions Guide lecture on mindfulness, which was one of the best ones we put out there, Ben, by the way. It's been awesome. So, hey, thanks for coming on the podcast and uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, man. So, so fill us a little bit short version of uh, who you are and, and what you do. Uh, so I uh, am wrapping up uh, wrapping up my career, as you mentioned, uh, 27 years in the Navy. Um I teach mindfulness and meditation, uh, mindful behaviors in general as a core performance modality. Um, that also has influence on all of you know our whole lives as well. Um, but specifically as a core contemplative modality with, with mindfulness at the center, um, teaching yoga, breath work, meditation, 
and mindful behaviors. Um, so that is, that is what I am doing moving forward from the military. That's awesome. I mean, and it, it, like I say, you're really, I, that's what I, I think was the best of your lecture because you, you really know this stuff. So you're bringing a ton of value and it's, it's obviously certainly over the last two years, I think the heightened awareness of mental health, you know, going through COVID and everyone being at home and, and I would say probably feeling it a little bit more. I think like pre COVID, you know, maybe where there were plenty of mental health issues, but man, we, it came home, you know, sometimes it was just someone in the family or, or veterans from combat or whatever. But I think like the nation, the world really like got, hunkered down and kind of started to feel some of this stuff. So it seems like it's gotten like super, you know, not popular is probably not the right word, but, but it's the awareness of mindfulness meditation has really been a ton of resources out there as of late. I know for me through COVID has been the time where I've been able to jump into it and learn a lot more and and try to reap the the benefits of it. Yeah. I, I think that, um, the idea that's become popular is is accurate. It has become popular and, and to, to a degree, to such a degree, and this is also true in the academic and scientific settings as well. It has become so studied. There are so many papers about it and there are people writing all sorts of articles about it in wellness domains uh, that the term mindfulness um, has even become watered down a bit. So there's, there's an, an sort of a it's good and it's good, but it also has a, a few negative undertones to it when it gets so popularized and commercialized. And uh, um, that just brings along some challenges in understanding what it really is and what it does for us. Cause it becomes a thing like, it's like, Oh yeah, yeah. Mindfulness heard about it. Yeah. Whatever. Moving on. What's the, what's the next new thing uh, that, you know, that what's the next new thing that's been rebranded for us to, to learn yeah. about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think you're hundred percent right. And I think it's, that's why it's important with anything, right? Like mm-hmm. that you, you got to, f- understand why you're doing it like what are you solving for what do you expect to get out of it so you're not just doing things just for the sake of doing things but you're you're doing them with intention like a lot of stuff i'm doing today we, it always comes back to you know the intentionality and uh going through this like why would one meditate or or seek to get into breath work or whatever so that they're you know clear you know on, on what they should be getting out of it not just following for the latest facebook ad you know or whatever on <laughs> on, on the on these apps and so on so what I mean, rewind back where, where did you originally grow up uh where'd you come from before you joined the navy uh so i'm from texas uh, arlington to be exact uh now the home of the Dallas Cowboys. Oh, right on. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Grew up in Texas. So was it, was it like uh, near Arlington or like it was a small town life for you or city life or? So Arlington is right in the middle of Dallas and Fort Worth. Uh, so it's uh, it was, it was a, a super fast growing suburb of mm. Dallas and Fort Worth. Okay. Uh, because of its positioning, it was like perfect to live outside of one of those cities. So it, it quickly became just as, as uh, you know, a, a big city within that the whole Metroplex. Um, so it, it grew and changed really fast. I don't even I don't even recognize my hometown anymore. I can't even like it does not look the same to me anymore at all. Yeah, that, I think that's been typical, right? Like with yeah. coming home from enlistments and whatever, and even if it's a short enlistment of four years or whatever, it seems like mm-hmm. these areas are just gangbusters. The um, so for you, was it um, were were was joining the military like your thing? Were were you? Always, all through school, did you know you were going to join the military? Did you have any roots from your family that influenced that or anything? Yeah. So my grandpa um, was a three-war veteran. So he did World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. So I grew up hearing all of his stories. And um, yeah, it was like 
we had a lot of uh, family members in the military uh, serving mm-hmm. in Vietnam. And out of uh, out of the four of us, uh, me and my siblings, there are four of us, uh, three of us joined the military. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, my, my brother and my sister both uh, joined the Army. Uh, and, and I started out in the Marines and then switched over to the Navy. So that's, uh, yeah, we're all like my uncles. Uh, my dad was in the Air Force, uh, a couple uncles uh, in the Army, uh, another uncle in the Air Force. So, uh, yeah, a lot of. A lot of a lot of military in my family. That's awesome. Yeah. So what uh, what was your grandfather? Was he in Marines, Army, or he was Army? He started out as um, horse drawn uh, artillery way back in the day. <laughs> he, he he actually had horses uh, and they were they're drawing artillery, uh, and then he switched over and became a combat engineer. Oh wow! Um, and that's what he, in World War II he was a combat engineer, and it was uh, I rem- it was really it was really cool seeing some of his pictures from from back at that time, just like. You know, you know, we take for granted, like the resources that we have, the equipment that we have, the technology and everything. And uh, he showed me some pictures of uh, a contest, a battalion uh, contest that they had between two of their construction battalions. And it was a bridge building contest. So they had to bridge, build a bridge across that could carry a five ton uh, with materials on hand. So they showed up one morning, started chopping down trees <laughs> and they like just boom, build a bridge and like I just can't believe that you did that in a matter of hours. And he has a picture of a five ton truck on top of the bridge that they just built just by chopping down trees. It's like, wow, that's really, that's, it's, 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 it's difficult for me to put myself there where, um, like I, well, geez, where do you even start? Right. (laughs) Yeah. With the equipment that they had back then. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and I think, man, I don't know. I think, I think we're wrong to make these assumptions. Like, I think there's a bit of like modern ego, like, oh, those those guys back then, they couldn't do anything. But if you look in history, like of humanity, it seems like they've just been amazing. Like, I mean, just you go back to if you go to old Europe and you see like these structures that, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years ago that were constructed, like we're, we've always been awesome. Like, you know, we've just now we've got technology. But like to your point about your grandfather, like what he got done with what he had then like we've always like really done some amazing stuff. It's not, yeah, you know, just the 21st century doesn't have the market cornered on amazing. Like, I mean, <laughs> absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sort of spoiled by Google and Google Maps now. I don't <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, there's definitely been technology, but our 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 innovations and the stuff that we can just accomplish is is been amazing the um so what about um so you joined the marine corps so so why the marines amongst the other services that when you're joining i attribute that to uh the marine corps um really good advertising like <laughs> they're they're good so I, I went to catholic school i grew up uh i went to seven years of catholic school and every month we got uh, a publication i can't remember what it was called but it was some youth publication uh, that was is a national youth publication of some kind. And the Marines had the Marines bought an ad in that magazine that was being delivered to elementary elementary school kids. And every month there was a different Marine Corps ad in that thing. Uh, so I remember what really hooked me was there was one one. I remember this very vividly. It was uh, this picture of a bunch of dudes with their face painted up and they're in a swamp and they're in a, a rubber raiding craft. And, you know, that looked really cool to me. That just looked super cool. So uh, it was always for me, it was always either the military or there is also a, a fire, uh, the local 
uh, fire department training station was on my way to school. And every once in a while, they'd have their building on fire, putting out a, one of their training fires. And that looked really cool to me. Yeah. Uh, or the police department. So it was always one form of service or another that uh, I was interested in. Ended up you're you're going to put a uniform on one way or the other. Yeah. So, That's you all get, I to do. I so were you the only Marine? Like, so you got all this, this military in your family. Were you the only Marine in the mix? I was. Yeah. What kind of flack did you get catch for that? Well, yeah, it's actually funny because my grandpa and my uncles were like, you can do whatever you want. Just don't join the Marines. <laughs> <laughs> so that might have had also something to do with it. <laughs> yeah. So so what was the so what did you join the Marines to do? Uh, I was an Amtrak mechanic. OK, right so, on. Yeah. Yeah. And I want so I was I was in the reserves and I wanted to go active duty. Um, but I wanted to become a, a translator and, and that's what I really wanted to do is, um, and I was, I was unsure and I didn't want to go active duty and then have them be like, okay, we paid for your training as an Amtrak mechanic. Now you're a full-time Amtrak mechanic. Mm. So I was like, okay, well then I'll just make the switch, which was really easy to do. And, um, went active duty in the Navy. Oh, wow. Yeah. Didn't have to go to boot camp or anything. Just went straight to my first school in the Navy. And that was an easy transition and a, a, a culture shock, but it was, it was good. I bet yeah, I thought it was. But that, isn't that true for like the Marines to the other branches? Like if they're coming from the Marines, they typically don't have to go through the other branches boot camp. Yeah. I don't know if that's true for today for the Army. It's still true for the Navy. Uh, and when I switched over, it was true for the Army back then. You're right. Um, so you could directly switch. They have to go through Air Force boot camp. Um, but um, at least I think they still do. But uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, you could, you could, you could, Marine Corps boot camp uh, out. You know, it's your place to test out of the other boot camps. <laughs> yeah. The uh, so why why a translator? What what was kind of drawing you to to do that? Uh, I've always just been interested, and in I can't totally explain why. Uh, I love it's just part. I guess part of my personality. I think is just I love um, understanding. I love knowing. The feeling of understanding when I hear someone speak another language and I can't understand it, it makes me want to learn it. Yeah. Uh, so growing up back home uh, is there was a, at that time, I don't know if it's still true, but at that time we had the second largest Vietnamese population in the United States. Really? In Arlington? Um, yep. Yeah, uh, Arlington to Dallas and Arlington area, but Arlington specifically had, you know, a lot, a very large population. Um, and a lot of them didn't speak English. Uh, so the whole, my whole plan was to like, um, go in the military, come home, be a, a cop back home and, and learn a language uh, and uh, be able to bring that back to the community. Um, but uh, I missed the Vietnamese class by two weeks when I got to uh, when I got to language school. Back then, they didn't plan out. Uh, they, they didn't pre-assign you languages. So I showed up without a language uh, and I missed the Vietnamese school by two weeks. So mm -hmm. they gave me Arabic instead. Uh, so I knew there was going to be a lot of work and the Middle East, so I went ahead and chose that one. So you're you're doing that. How long before you end, you end up deploying from the time you picked up your new job in the Navy? So I did uh, one full tour. Uh, my first tour was at the NSA in Fort Meade, um, and then it was at that is it, it, it was there that well, I was there when 9/11 happened, um, and then soon after that, I found out about um, a the program that existed for me to support direct combat support to with the SEAL teams. Um, so I went through that training, um, went through that selection process. Uh, and from then on, so that was uh, 2004 was my first appointment. Uh, so yeah, it was about eight years before before then. I was, I'd been in already a bit for a minute. 
So what's the, the what's the training that you had to go to? I mean, they didn't you didn't go through buds or did you? No, no. Back then, uh, at the time that I that I joined this program, it the training was uh, that we went through special warfare combatant craft school, so SWIC school is where we went. Uh, so the same the same school as the as the boat guys. Um, so I went through SWIC class four four um, and graduated that, and then went to came to the East Coast to support. Um, there are some some guys went like some guys went to support the boat teams. Other guys went to support the SEAL teams. Since I'm an Arabic li- uh, linguist, I went, of course, to the SEAL teams going to Iraq. So um, I guess that's that's where I got started. Yeah, that's awesome. So what was what did you learn through that? How was how was that as far as a challenge for you? I mean, certainly every Marine's a rifleman, so we went through a lot <laughs> of you know kind of basic infantry training there. Mm-hmm. But you know what was what was that growth? What was that like for you from a growth perspective and in, in kind of, you know, reaching a higher standard with the special warfare stuff? So as I haven't thought about in a while, in that a while, that's a great question. Um, I was, I was, I was really lucky in that um, I had that experience because, you know, SWIC school was great from a selection standpoint, but it didn't prepare me for some of the combat things that I would be doing. Uh, and back then, you know, in 2004, the program was still relatively nascent. Um, there was some training that I was lacking going on my first combat deployment. So like my very first operation was an ambush and t- the requirement was such that there was very little time from arriving at my duty station to getting deployed downrange. Um, it's not like I had ever, we didn't ever, like, I didn't even practice ambushes before that, before that operation. So, but I had in, you know, my basic Marine combat training and, and boot camp. we had done that then. So I understood the, the extreme basics. I understood all the principles. Right. Uh, so, you know, that, that experience was super helpful. Um, you know, I didn't, as a support guy back then, we didn't have um, the high-speed equipment. I didn't have optics at all on my on my weapons. Um, I had iron sights, mm-hmm. so the team was very surprised that I that I was good with iron sights that I could shoot almost as fast as them with with optics as I you know with with my iron sights. So that was that was good to get a little bona fides that way because you know it's like you know on day one of my training with the platoon, like I'm I'm hitting what they're hitting with optics. I'm doing it with iron sights. So that was. That was really helpful, um, and that whole experience of you know the what the what the Marine Corps instills in people, I think, um, that that um, that drive for excellence, uh, the esprit de corps, all that you know is super real, <laughs> and that stayed with me in the Navy. Uh, that you know even even in the Navy, I was I still felt like a Marine in the Navy. Um, so that preparation was was really key, I think, to my success in, in, in being always uncomfortable all the time as a support guy in, in the platoons, always uncomfortable, always, you know, having to, to, to do things that I was not really ready to do yet, but still having to be, you know, to excel at them. Um, all that, that, that cultural, um, distillation of what that is in the Marine Corps, I think stuck with me, um, as I, as I progressed through the Navy. Right. Yeah. And I guess, it, I guess let's, let's go through it in case someone's wondering like what your job was. So you're a support guy with the SEALs, which meant what, like, what was your, yeah. your job? What was your days or deployments kind of look like from that perspective? So, yeah. So generally speaking, um, us 
my specialty and, and EOD are the two uh, explosive ordnance disposal. The bomb experts are the, are the two specialties that uh, integrate with uh, at the platoon level with the teams. Um, so not, there's just no books written about us and nobody really talks about us. And that's fine because like we want it that way. Um, but the, the job is number one for, especially for me, for because I speak a language is interpretation, translation. Um, but there's also a bunch of cryptologic functions that we do. Um, finding the enemy, locating them, um, saying, you know, the guy that we want is behind doors, uh, door number two, don't pick one and three is behind this door right here. Um, providing early warning, uh, direction finding, that kind of thing. So those cryptologic functions to keep the team safe on target, get them off target fast, um, and be able to provide warning. Right. Mm -hmm. And you're, but you're going with them. If they're going out on op, you're with them. That's correct. They're pulling, you know, pulling bad guys. They're grabbing them. You're right there with them. And like on the scene, you're translating, you know, on yeah, their behalf. There's, there's a gap of what um, assets can provide and that, that there, we can never reach all the way down to the ground with the tactical units. There's always, a, there's always a gap. There's always stuff missing. And that's where we come in. We fill that gap between the, between what can be seen on the ground and what can be seen from other assets. Uh, so we provide those with man packable assets. Right. Now, did you, now I would, was there any of like, I understand where you're coming from when you were saying earlier that you didn't like not understanding like these other languages, you're around the Vietnamese, you, you can't, you don't understand it. You want to learn. Were you, te did you, were you teaching like members of your platoon? Like, so now, you know, Arabic, are you teaching mm -hmm. them so they can kind of be a little bit more aware, like on scene and things like that at all? Yes. Yes. The, the, the absolute basics that for whatever they can remember, um, um, some you know, basic commands. Right. Um, and, and, and some guys could, who had you know, amazing capacities for learning language. Um, but always the, you know, the, 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 at least the bare minimum of thing of basic commands that people might need on target. Right. Yeah, no, that's cool. The, the uh, so, with regard to the mindfulness aspect of things that you're doing, what what got you there? Like, what brought you into this world of mindfulness, yoga, breath work? So yeah, so uh, it's it happened kind of in phases. Um, so I guess even from when I, before I joined the military, I took traditional Japanese karate back home when I was a kid. And we meditated before class. So that was my first introduction to contemplative practices and meditation. And um, I really enjoyed it. So I've always, I've always been bent towards, you know, those aspects of the internal experience and perception and all those things. Um, and then when I was in language school, I was not doing well. That was the first, that was the first time that I really went searching for a way um, to understand how to regulate attention. Uh, because uh, years later I was diagnosed with ADHD. No big deal. It's just, I never understood that about myself. I thought that I was just a bad student. No, it's just, I have this particular brain chemistry that, you know, likes climbing mountains and running outside more than it likes sitting in a desk for eight hours a day for over a year straight. So in order to, in order to make it through class, I went looking for alternative lear learning strategies and came upon um, Thich Nhat Hanh's work in the library, uh, The Miracle of Mindfulness. And um, started doing the practices, got immediate results. Um, and um, I consider him my first teacher. He passed away recently, uh, but he's an amazing human being. He did so much for the world. And I consider his works my first teachings in mindfulness. Um, so that was the first exposure. And what we what happens often is when like we 
we, we find these practices often because we're suffering in some way. Um, in, in that case, for me, I was suffering. My grades were suffering, so I needed to pay attention, uh, but I couldn't pay attention. I needed to find a way to do that. Um, when that suffering was over, I graduated school and now I'm good. Now I understand how to you know, do this stuff. I stopped meditating. I stopped mm-hmm. practicing. Um, and then years later, after I started deploying uh, and you know, accumulating combat stress, post-traumatic stress, all that stuff, um, I got to a point where before one of my deployments, uh, I, and I've only just started sharing this story because I mean, I think it's important though. For some reason, this is this this is the hardest one for me. This is like the last one for me to share. I was afraid. I was so afraid of death before it was my fifth deployment. I was I became so uh, wrapped around the axle with anxiety and fear that I was afraid that I was not going to equip myself honorably in combat. I was afraid that I was going to lock up and that I that something was going to happen and I wasn't going to be able to support my team properly. Um, and I, I'm just, that's I'm just that's not going to happen. So, um, and this was and, your fifth deployment. So this yeah. was a culmination of your other deployments. You're going again and you're going. Yeah. And it was building up. It had always been yeah. building, uh, but finally it got to the point where I was unable to, um, really, I was unable to continue to operate at the level that I felt like I needed to operate at. And it had already been degrading my performance. Mm. Um, luckily not to the degree that really anybody noticed. Um, but I knew it. Um, I knew it within, and it was a story that was always playing. Um, and and uh, so no one knew you had this fear? No, no, I never told anybody. It's like, of all the things I could talk about, I'm not telling anyone that I'm afraid. Sure. Um, and I don't even want to admit to myself that I'm afraid. Uh, but that's but but that's just what it was. Uh, so I, uh, I went to a performance coach uh, and said, hey, man, I'm having these problems. Like, can you help me out? Um, anything. Uh, and he gave me these mindfulness exercises and I was like, Oh, this is familiar. And these meditations to do. And, uh, I did the meditation. This was, this was like a, a, a week or two before deployment. So it was like right up against the wires. Like, Oh my God, I'm moving my mind. Um, so, uh, so he gives me this stuff to do. And, um, I did the meditations once or twice a day, did the mindfulness exercises and, um, it had almost immediate results. Uh, and I had a breakthrough a couple of weeks into deployment. Uh, we we're on this operation and, um, you know, we're going from one fight to the next fight, you know, fighting always in the morning and the afternoon. So we finished up our morning fight um, and we're going to the next one. We had stopped by this river and uh, this was the first time. So we, we stopped by the river, making comms, doing a map check, whatever. And um, I was going through my mindfulness exercises and I became aware for the first time ever, I became aware of the absence of fear. I became aware of and present to the absence of anxiety, fear, any negative emotions, um, and present to just the feeling of being right there, right now. I could hear the sound of the river, um, you know, the, the breeze blowing against my skin. It was a bright, sunshiny day uh, in, in Afghanistan. You know, like the mountains were beautiful. I was like, wow, I'm in Afghanistan. Like I took a helicopter to get here, you know, <laughs> like yeah. how, how's my life culminated at this point? It's actually kind of cool. I'm here with a group of people and we're all like my brothers here, my, my team. And I was so absent of fear and trepidation and so present to connection and love and joy and just the present moment, even though I, we had just gotten in a fight, even though we were heading to another one. Um, I was like, wow, this is, this is what it really means. This is being present in the moment. 
and able that that was my liberation from fear of death mm. uh, and knowing that even if I don't make it home, no matter, I don't know what's going to happen. Even if I don't make it home, my family's going to be taken care of. So I'm going to be all right. Like no matter what happens, I know I'm going to be all right. I don't know how I know that, but I, you know, I can feel that everything's going to be fine. Uh, so that was a, a reprogramming um, that didn't take too long at all. What it took was work and commitment to the practice. Mm. Uh, and then the, the, the last part was once again, after I got home from that, de the, that deployment, I stopped meditating again because now the stimulus is gone. I, I'm, I'm no longer deploying. I think I'm good now. Uh, and then a couple of years later, everything caught up with me again. Mm. Um, just all the, that, that spectrum of symptoms from combat stress, the years and, you know, living like that for so long. Um, so, but this time I knew exactly what to do. Like, all right, third time's a charm. I know what I'm doing. I know these practices work. I know they're effective. Um, and then, but I integrated it with, with movement and breath work and um, the results were amazing. Uh, so, I mean, I fell in love with life again. Everything improved. My relationships improved. Um, it, it improved my life in a way that uh, I, when truly committing to the practice, uh, it improved my life in a way that I did not expect. Mm. And that's why I became so passionate about it. It's like, wow, like I, would, I love sharing this stuff with other people. Yeah. It's, and what of, and it's until you experience it, like we were talking pregame, like, you know, it's until you experience that you really just want to get out there and share the wealth of it. Right. Because it's, it's like such, such a dramatic impact to, to get there because it's almost like that, you know, that old joke, like the fish in the water and the old fish swims by the young fish. And they're like, you know, Hey boys, how's the water? And they're like, what's water, you know, because <laughs> when you're living in that ang anxious, like it almost becomes status quo. Right. And you don't really appreciate it until you get, you break, you have that breakthrough, like you mentioned. And yeah, so. yeah, it really, it really does become like, that's just the way it is. And there is no other way. Cause it happens so insidiously and so slowly over time. Um, I mean, some people have traumatic events that happen and there's a, there's a break where life is like this and now it's like this. And that's a very mm -hmm. common thing. Um, in my experience, it was a very slow transition of just lifestyle over time of always being switched on, unable to like super hyper vigilant, unable to switch off. Um, and then of course, just the memory is always playing. There's, you know, I was just never truly physical, physically like, but yeah, the body's here. Sure. But my mind was always somewhere else, always yeah. somewhere else. And I'd become programmed for, to only feel alive in a certain context. Um, and I had to, I had to reprogram my brain to teach myself how to feel a different way. And what was that round of practice? So you had a short runway before going on deployment. You picked up mindfulness again. You hadn't done it since the karate days. Mm -hmm. What what was it? What was the practice at that point to get you to that state, you know, where you were able to be more present? Yeah, uh, it was uh, uh, one meditation a day. It was about a twenty minute meditation minimum uh, once a day. Sometimes more times, as much as I had time for. Um, and, and then basic mindfulness practices throughout the day of realizing where I am, what I'm connected to, where my feet are, uh, where my breath is, um, and linking that to visualization practices as well. So, uh, linking that to, uh, understanding that present within my body and present within my experience, within my brain are, are parts of myself that existed at times when I felt completely safe. So being able to access the goodness that's always somewhere within there, 
and being able to be present to that um, and um, accessing memories that uh, reminded me of the, the, the physiological, the feeling of being safe, that condition of being safe. Mm. Um, and uh, working through those exercises over time. Yeah. So it was, so yeah, two meditations a day. Sometimes usually it was one, but there's sometimes it was twice a day. Mm. Um, and then just these, these practices, these, what I call informal practices throughout mm. the day. And, and the informal practices, if I understand what you're saying, you're just saying kind of just taking a time out, like that's not a full on sit session, 20 minutes long, but just taking a, a moment to ground yourself, kind of bring it in. You know, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, essentially. And with, within, within mindfulness as a practice, um, so mindfulness and meditation not being synonymous, um, my or meditation can exist within a meditation or within a, a mindfulness practice. Mm. Uh, and it's that formal sitting, uh, practice where you sit down in some way and do a formal meditation, a structured, uh, of some kind, uh, meditation. And there are many different ways to med meditate, many different frameworks. Mm. Uh, but the effect is similar across all domains. Um, so, uh, I love mindfulness and, and the, the way that, uh, that mindfulness meditation um, is very broad. The learning experience and the, ex the self-directed experience within a mindfulness meditation uh, and the, the various kinds of uh, mindfulness meditation, it, the experience is very broad and, and rich. Um, I, only, I only compare that with something like that's more of a, a concentration meditation where you might say, you know, a one word mantra over and over again or focus on a, on a candle flame. That kind of concentration meditation is great. And I do that sometimes. Um, and, you know, we, we can also focus on something like the breath uh, and, and, and nothing but. But within an overall mindfulness, if we get into something like open monitoring, open awareness, where you're just becoming aware of everything that you can possibly be aware of, mm. uh, it can be a very rich, self-directed experience. So that's one of the reasons why I love um, mindfulness as, as, as a meditative and contemplative uh, modality. So the things that you're just describing, kind of like the awarenessness versus the concentrated, are those forms of meditation or are you just stating those are aspects of mindfulness or, or is, is that different types of meditations that you would do one where you're sitting outside listening to everything going on versus one that maybe you're sitting there only focusing on your breath solely. Yeah. So yeah, there's some, a couple of different, um, ways of meditating. Um, concentration, like a, con a type of concentration meditation might be where you're focusing on a single object of awareness and mm. training your mind on that single object of awareness. So um, like the first place to start uh, within the body is the breath of noticing the breath and rooting the and rooting in the experience of breathing. That's an internal um, anchor that mm. is, is always present within us. Um, other things people meditate with is like the candle flame or lighting uh, a stick of incense and focusing, concentrating single-mindedly on the smoke that rises from the incense mm. uh, or, or sound, sound bowls, sound healing. Like there's all sorts of external stimuli that we can focus our attention on. The goal of which being um, simply to every time the mind goes away somewhere else and we're going to have thoughts and we notice that just to make the choice to deliberately bring the attention back to our chosen object of awareness, whatever that is. Mm. Um, so uh, it, it's, it's nice and easy to start with the breath because it's exists within us and it's, it, it's an internal sensation and internal experience within us. So it's, it's always available.
Hey guys, Dale here, and I wanted to take a quick break to invite you to join the launch of the Lions Guide community called The Pride. You see, whether it was at work dealing with the demands of the day or maintaining the demands of my life at home, I always seemed to feel like my struggles were unique, like somehow I was the only one struggling to find joy amidst all the weight that I felt I was carrying each day. And you know what I've come to realize is that we all have our struggles that we're up against, and it's pretty demanding. The only way to rise to those demands is to decide and make the change to adopt a growth mindset, to be what I call a high performer. And that's why I started Lions Guide. I want to help you break through to the next level of you and your ability to not only meet, but exceed those demands on you and in doing so, find your joy again. If you're a growth-minded individual ready to make a change, then I'm here for you. And this is how you get started. I invite you to visit lionsguide.com and sign up to join the Pride. The Pride is the Lions Guide community for growth-minded members like you. Once signed up, you'll get special access to all the free content and resources I'm putting out there. You'll also be invited to join my live online events where I host sessions on personal growth and high performance. You'll also be able to engage with other growth-minded members on our private online group. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast as a member, you'll get access not only to all the podcasts, but also the podcasts that have been yet to be released. So get access to all this and more. So break out of that rut, break into your next level, and join me on lionsguide.com, and let's grow together. Go to lionsguide.com and become a member of the Pride today. Now back to the show. The intentionality of the concentration type meditations that you mentioned, who, who would do that or why would one do that, so to speak? Like what, 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 like we, what, what would one be solving for to go to that type of meditation? Yeah. Uh, so working and beginning with these simple forms. So by the way, these practices are super simple. Like it's, it's so simple that it seems almost counterintuitive. Like it needs to be more complicated to be effective. But the, the first place to start um, with that, the first place rather that, that our brains are affected by these kinds of practices, specifically like with concentration meditation is attention regulation. Uh, so training neural networks in the brain, like literally physically changing structures um, within the brain, creating more connections, getting neurons to talk to each other, fire to each other, sending that information back and forth in a thought pattern that, it, that, that strengthens deliberate action, that strengthens self-agency. It, this, the, the ability to make a choice over and over and over, because that's what we're doing when we're meditating. Mm. Um, some people describe meditation and say that meditation should be effortless, that take no effort whatsoever. And if you're exerting effort, um, then you're doing it wrong. Uh, I don't really agree with that personally, because um, when we're talking about when we're talking about the energies of the mind, um, sending attention in any direction re requires effort. It requires energy. Uh, and so if I'm going to focus my attention on something, it's going to require energy in order for me to bring it back over and over again. The more we do that, the, the easier it becomes. There are going to be days when we're super reactive and it gets really hard. Eventually, we, get, we may get to a point where we experience long periods of effortless attention. Um, that's kind of that idea of effortless, like where it's no longer takes effort to hold the attention in a certain place. And then we start, that's where people start getting into deeper states of meditation and deeper states of consciousness. Um, and that's then, then people start to get uh, experience things like absorption where the, and where, where we detach from the senses and um, you know, time distortion happens. Like all these really cool things happen with the consciousness when we're able to train the mind to do these things. Mm -hmm. But it starts with focusing the mental energies on the subtle 
kind, disciplined effort of just, okay, I'm having a thought, I recognize it, and then bringing it right back to the present moment, to the breath, to whatever the anchor is. Um, and that trains the thought pattern uh, for self-agency and mm -hmm. choice and deliberate action within thought. So your ability to focus, like you recognize you're scatterbrained and you are practicing your ability to bring whatever you need to be focused on within into focus, so to speak. Yeah. And, and that includes, uh, so that attention regulation, the ability to regulate and monitor uh, your attention and to bring it back to your chosen point, the chosen object of awareness, uh, that also helps you regulate emotion. So when I notice, when I observe myself in, a, in an emotionally reactive state, um, and I do so in a mindful way, uh, meaning I, I do so deliberately and without judgment. Um, and by the way, practicing non-judgment over and over again is also building a thought pattern in me to be a very observant without you know, grasping on to mm -hmm. preconceived notions. Mm -hmm. So if, if I'm observing my own emotional state non-judgmentally, um, that gives me the ability to um, number one, observe, and then to notice where my energies are being directed and then choose where to send those energies mm. um, and, and to choose the orientation with which I relate to my emotions as well. Mm. The, the orientation with which I relate to my thoughts. Uh, it, 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 it opens a, a pathway into these really deep aspects of consciousness that, you know, I don't think that I'll ever, I don't think that as, as long as, however much longer I live, I'll never get bored meditating because there's so many aspects, deep aspects of consciousness to explore. Um, so there's, like what, there's what does always that something mean to observe. For like someone who doesn't get it. Cause I'm, man, I've been trying for a year and that's when I hear stuff like that. Like, what does that mean exactly? Like you're exploring this different states yeah. of consciousness. So I'll, I'll, I'll link it to this concept. So um, one of the one of the good things that um, meditation in general um, and, and, and and mindfulness as well, but one of the things that that they do for us is that it actually like literally creates structure in the brain that's that's measurable within a matter of weeks. Mm -hmm. um, it grows the neocortex. It causes our, our grow text to our, our grow text. That's a great name. It causes <laughs> it causes the cortex to grow. Grow text. Um, and so, and, but all learning does, all learning causes the cortex to grow. But what's cool about this is that, you know, we think about learning and, and, and neurogenesis and building synapses, you know, connections between, between brain cells. You know, I, I'm sitting here in a, in a quiet room and I'm not going anywhere. I'm not doing anything. I'm just going to place in my mind and directing my mental energy. And that's causing my brain to grow. And it's, it's a, it's a really cool effect of meditation. The reason why that's happening, that, it, you know, it's that growth is happening. That's neuroplasticity you know, the brain's uh, response to experience. The reason why that's happening is because I'm giving myself a self-directed experience. I'm directing my experience and I'm having it internally within, you know, with, right here. Yeah. Um, and if you, if, if we think about the amount of things that happen, the amount of, the amount of, energy and resources that our brain consumes on a daily basis, somewhere in the realm of 20 to 25% of oxygen and glucose is going to the brain. And that's only 2% of our body mass. So all of those resources are going to our brain. It's doing a lot of stuff. Just the conscious awareness part of that 
that takes a lot of energy too. It takes that takes even more than so that than, than the autonomic functions. Mm. So when we're consciously directing our energy, when we're when we're observing it, even just passively observing it, there's a lot going on in our minds at any given time, um, and and there there are some really interesting states of being to to examine and to become present to and to learn, mm. and it simply begins by um, it can it can simply begin with observing the breath with mm. just observing what's the experience of taking a single breath? Mm. Like, as if you had never taken a breath before, what, is, what could right. that be like? My first lesson from Thich Nhat Hanh, I'll never forget because this is why I fell in love with the practice right away. My first lesson from, from that book was, uh, when you're walking down a path, know that you are walking down a path. When you're walking on a path, know that you're walking on a path. All right, cool, I was like, yeah, whatever, I got it. That, that sounds like whatever. <laughs> But the next day I'm walking to school and I realized that I'd never actually walked on a path. You know, I've never been present to the, to what my feet feel like hitting the sidewalk, never been present to what the air feels like as I'm walking against it. Uh, my mind was always on, what do I got to do for class? What's my homework? You know, what are my grades? Uh, it was never right there in the moment. So that simplicity is almost counterintuitive. <laughs> you know, it's, it seems like it should be more complicated, but the amount of learning that that, that simple step gave me um, just set the stage for everything else to follow. Yeah, I mean, it's it's awesome. The, so I, I see the concentration piece, it's increasing your focus. Uh, I don't know if you watch Netflix at all, but I stumbled upon it because I'm still trying to learn as much as I can about this to understand it. But they had, there's a show like Everything Explained and they had a mindfulness show on there. And I thought they had this really good analogy of the neuropathways being like, if you were to ride a sled down a snow hill, like it would make a rut in the snow. And if you went up there and did it again, that rut will get a little deeper and then it would be a little bit deeper. And they said, that's like your neural pathways. Like the more you do something and, and you reminded me of it with this concentration meditation, like your inability to focus, if you adopt a practice of meditation where you're focusing on your breath and then you're bringing it back, what you're saying is that practice of saying, oh, you're wandering. Hey, come on back. Focus back on the breath. That practice is like that first ride down the slope, right? You're, you're, mm -hmm. that might be light, but the more you do that, the deeper that narrow pathway gets so that you can outside of meditation, control your focus a little bit better. Does that make sense? Is that? Yeah, hundred percent. That's a, that's exactly what's happening. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. And that's, and that's where it starts. Um, and, and yeah, so that, that, that's a great analogy. So I, I really like that. Um, so that's, that's what's happening with, with multiple aspects of, of thought pattern. That's what this is. We're, we're actually molding thought pattern. And along with mindfulness, in the practice of mindfulness, we're also, you know, the thought patterns that we're developing are also attitudes, orientations towards how we view the world. So mm -hmm. if I'm practicing letting go of judgments, then that helps me see more clearly. When I, when I, when I relate to people, I can set those aside for a minute. I can notice, I can notice when I'm judging and say, okay, what would be, what would it be like if I put that judgment on the shelf for a minute and thought about this person as a whole person, um, as opposed to an, an object that I'm judging that I put into a box. Um, you know, and I can, we can apply that across the board to a lot of different ways of being. So it, it's, um, it's in the, in the practice of directing our mental energies, 
and, and, and bringing that into a way of being in the world uh, and how we show up for people, how we show up just, just walking out in the morning, opening my eyes, how I show up and then how I show up for the people who are most important to me, the, you know, the things that are most important to me, um, how I feel connected to the world. Like it, it, it affects just the way that I see and interact with my environment. Um, because I'm seeing things in a different way. So it's, yeah. Yeah. I think you really kind of broke it down for me in a way that I, I didn't quite understand before now, because I always heard you and others kind of say, Hey, come back to your breath without judgment, come back to your breath. And I always took that as like, don't beat yourself up. You know, I always took it as like, but now I, I really appreciate what you're saying is you're actually likewise neuropathway controlling your emotional reaction to things, right? You're saying, you're saying you see something or somebody does something, whatever, and we want to immediately just react. And, and that reaction is probably emotional depending on situation or even the judgment aspect of it and being able, and I really appreciate now the reason for that is the practice of, you know, controlling your emotions and not jumping to judgment, but having some yeah. grace, so to speak, yeah, it's a it's a it's a subtle, and and here here's a nuance. Uh, it's it's a little it's a little subtle nuance here. Where when we are, it's like we're practicing less control in a way uh, of the emotional state, because we're not trying to force the emotions to do anything. Mm. We're not trying to force ourselves out of one emotion and into another emotion. We're simply allowing that emotion to be what it is. It's present, whatever it is. The emotions aren't when that horse, if the horse is out, like it's, it's already gone. Like by the time you feel it, it's present. It's a physical manifestation. It's in the body and it's already out. By the time I'm already angry, it's too late. I'm already angry. So the point is uh, that I'm just going to let that be there. I'm going to observe it, orient myself non-judgmentally towards it and let it run its course. Um, and in so doing, I'm not attaching myself to the story about why I'm angry, um, which just allows that emotion to clear out physically from the body. And it gives me some space to make to choose an appropriate response. Mm. Um, that's that's kind of where that is. So it's it's less exerting control over the emotions and more orienting, orienting oneself in, in such a way that we are able to observe it. Let them run their course without without. Um, reacting uh, in accordance with the circumstance upon us. Uh, does that make sense? So I'm not being I'm not being controlled by circumstance. Mm. Um, I it gives me just enough space to observe to observe non-judgmentally and just to begin to release myself from it, as opposed mm. to trying to wrangle it into some like you tell yourself don't what's it like calm down. <laughs> Like every time someone says that, I hear something like, calm down. Like, yeah, sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm calm now. <laughs> yeah. Try to tell <laughs> thanks for that. Thanks for, thanks for reminding me. Yeah. Yeah. The same works when we tell ourselves that it doesn't work like that. Like it's, it's, there's a, there's a subtle nuance difference uh, between doing that and between just uh, observing what's happening and letting it run its course. Um, so, yeah. Is it like saying, you're choosing to enact those emotions or not to a bit like um, it's, it's the willingness to allow yourself to experience those emotions. Right. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. As, a, as opposed to, to doing some mental psychological gymnastics where we're folding ourselves into a different 
uh, position. Um, it's the willingness to experience these emotions, any emotion, uh, not to change them, but just to experience them, to observe them. That in and of itself helps us differentiate and discern between the emotion and the story to which that emotion is linked. And also the physical sensation of that emotion helps us discern all of those things and understand that, uh, you know, this is just a story. It's not a fact, you know, whatever is causing this emotion may or may not be fact. Mm. So it's just a story. So for example, in, in my story about being afraid, uh, on before that deployment to the point where I was, you know, thinking that number one, I'm not coming home. This is the one not making it back. Uh, two, I was afraid to the point where it was affecting my performance. It, that is all linked to the story of me not coming home. It's not, it's not linked to anything else, but a story. So the story of, of death was not a fact for me. Like it was, nothing was written in stone, you know? So it is orienting the mind to observe the story, observe the emotions, observe, 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 observe. And, uh, the, the more that we practice that observation, the more discerning that the mind, the brain gets to these contexts. And, and that too, because so we were talking about the concentration meditation, is that the other counterpart why you would meditate, but you would sit and listen to like same question, different, um, <clears throat> different meditation, the one where you're sitting and you're listening to everything going around you or, or maybe body scans and things like that. Um, that where the concentration meditations were for focus is that other meditation solving for your ability to be present to your surroundings and things like that? Yeah, that's, that's definitely one of the things it helps with. Uh, it's just a different way of directing the energies of our, of our, of our thoughts and, 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 and mental energy saying that if we compare it to say comparing like a concentration type of meditation and an open monitoring or open awareness type um, one's like a spotlight, like a flashlight that you're like, focusing in on one thing. And the other is like the light of a candle that's, or a lantern that's shining in all directions. Um, mm. As a light is shining in all directions, things come into that light and I can be aware of them. Here's, here comes a moth, here comes another moth and another one. So like, as they're coming into awareness, I can, I can observe them as they're entering awareness. Um, and then I can just let them go out of awareness as well. Or I can, I can hold on to them for a minute, observe it non-judgmentally. Um, and then return to, you know, the open monitoring. Um, <clears throat> it's a practice of also uh, allowing oneself to, to, to witness the transition, how attention transitions from object of awareness to object of awareness. Um, and, and that's an interesting thing to observe as well. Switching the attention from one thing to a next is, is just also another kind of experience, um, noticing the space in between. So it's, that's, uh, there's lots of, lots of stuff to observe in that as well. Yeah, no, it's cool. And, and with regard to like your practice today, like what's some of your, like, what do you enjoy most? Like, what do you like, man, this one is non-negotiable. This is the way I meditate or part of my mm -hmm. practice that I, I just, you enjoy it. You feel you get the most out of it. Like what's, what's your, what's your mindfulness favorites? Uh, so I'd say that I always start out my meditations by um, anchoring in the breath. That's the first thing for me. Um, and if I have long enough, um, I if I have a long enough time frame, and I, and I mean that because a lot of times I will meditate multiple times throughout the day, um, sometimes only five minutes at a time. If I have 20 to 30 minutes of time to formally sit down, uh, that's that's great. Um, 
And that happens at least once a day. Um, so if I have 20 to 30 minutes, I'll spend five to 10 of that just anchoring into the breath, just becoming really grounded, really focused, um, really directive of my, my mental energy. Um, and then I can release that anchor and then just see what's present and just allow my mind to, to, to witness whatever's there. And that includes external sensations, sounds, um, you know, you know, what, 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 even my eyes might be closed, but I can still see shapes and colors with the, you know, behind my eyelids. And then some of the, the more subtle uh, points of, you know, observe observation within the consciousness, you know, the, the transition from one point of awareness to another point of awareness, or what does it feel like to just sit and rest in open awareness and not even have a thought just in that quiet, just a sense with no thought whatsoever. That's a cool place to be. Um, so, I guess to distill, to distill it down uh, is I always start by anchoring and most often I anchor with the breath. Um, and then I will transition into either some kind of open monitoring. Um, labeling or noting is another thing I do, especially if I'm high, uh, super um, reactive like these days with everything going on in Ukraine. I'm really reactive. I'm really reactive emotionally to everything that's going on. Um, so I do a practice of labeling emotions, naming emotions, being becoming really adept at naming, giving things names for what I'm feeling and identifying where they exist in the body. Yeah, no, and I really, I love that too, man, that it, it and that goes a part of this is like the awareness. When you give an object a name, mm -hmm. you, now you can call it for what it is. And you, you, that in itself gives you this, you know, form of agency, right? When you go, that's mm -hmm. anger, man. Like you're being angry right now. You know what I mean? Instead of like just embodying it and, and acting it out and you're just bringing that acknowledgement to it. I, I think that's a really, again, it goes back to just your ability to, I, I'm trying to avoid saying the word control, but you're, you're just like conscious, I guess is, is the right word maybe to say in this, this yeah. framework. Yeah. It's, yes, that's saying like, yeah, if you, if you can name it, you can tame it. Uh, and with the emotion, yeah, there you go. yeah, it's, it's, it's regulation. It's, it's regulation. It's giving yourself that space to make the choice. Um, yeah, we can see that as a form of control, I guess, you know, if, if we want it like, but it's, it's a more nuanced than control and that's, and that's okay. Um, that, that space where like, if I, if something is happening, if I have a stimulus and then, uh, I am able to name it, give it a name, notice what's happening within my body that creates just enough space, perhaps for me to make a choice for an appropriate response as opposed mm. to, or a mindful response as opposed to an automatic reaction. Yeah. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's regulating the emotional affect. Um, and, um, naming things because like those with the emotions they can get really subtle they can blend into each other they can f the, the body only has like the body has a limited amount of words like the body's language is very limited it has a very limited vocabulary and sometimes you know that feeling in my chest m might be caused by something else um so it's it, it's it's a great practice of really getting in tune with what is it that i'm really experiencing right now is it is it fear? Is it anxiety? Is it, uh, and you know, where is it, where is it represented within the body? Where is it manifesting? Oh, okay. It's just, you know, it's just cause I had pizza earlier today, you know, whatever that might be, there are, there are different indicators for what that language might be telling you. Hmm. Where in your practice does the 
the breath work and the yoga fit into it? Like what, how do they apply to, you know, your, your tool toolkit of mindfulness? Uh, so yeah, yoga and breath work. So yo- uh, yoga and breath work go really well together. Uh, I mean, they, they, I mean, they exist together. Um, I practice uh, vinyasa. I teach vinyasa. I also practice kundalini yoga, which is a lot of powerful breath work. Um, so we can access and change um, chemistry in the body simply by changing the breath. So the as a, as a way to access and regulate the autonomic nervous system, the central nervous system, uh, the breath is the, the best place to start and, and how we work with that. Um, so for me, that's where it really went in, in, in developing um, and really working with certain types of breath that help me um, experience and feel embodied states of presence you know, in this physical being. So to, to, to breathe and move in a certain way that is an empowering experience physically. Um, in other words, just to feel good moving. So uh, breathing and moving to do so. So that's where yoga really comes in for me. Uh, yoga asana for me, that's, that's uh, you know, the, 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 how we see yoga in the West uh, as exercise. And really, asana really is exercise. Um, it, it, yoga postures were developed so that they could, you know, the, the ancient yogis long ago could sit in meditation longer. That's really that what they're after. They weren't after, you know, getting getting into these, um, you know, there, there were no yoga competitions. It wasn't it wasn't the Western idea of you know gymnastics based, based calisthenics. Uh, it was simply to to make the body flexible enough, healthy enough, strong enough to sit in meditation longer, so that they so because when we're distracted by physical pain it's more difficult to stay present with other things. So by strengthening the body and making the body open enough, uh, they could sit for longer periods of time. So mm-hmm. it was always about, it's, it was always about um, accessing higher levels of consciousness uh, and liberation from suffering. Mm-hmm. The, the physical aspect of that is an aid. And we understand now through science why, why some of that is, um, and neuroplasticity is one of them. So, um, you know, we go through a long yoga practice to say we do an hour or 90 minutes of hot yoga at the end. Uh, we, we lay in Shavasana corpse pose. Um, the, one of the reasons why that's such an effective, uh, place to be at the end of a yoga session after, especially a hot yoga session is because exercise increases neuroplasticity. Um, the elevated heart rate over a lo- over a longer period of time increases the brain's plasticity, the way that it, it molds. So then what's important is so that we know that exercise increases neuroplasticity, but what what's not talked about very often is that, is that this, so neuroplasticity is great. That's going to increase our retention, our learning, uh, any, it's going to increase growth, but what's important is what we put into our minds when we're highly plastic. The same mm-hmm. thing is true in traumatic events. Traumatic events cause the mind to be extremely plastic. Um, and then those, those experiences are burned in. So as we're exercising, as we're working out, practicing yoga, whatever it is that's increasing our neuroplasticity, um, what are we putting, what are we putting in there? 
what are, what are, when, when we're extremely plastic, what are we, what are we thinking? What's our self dialogue like? Mm. Um, so that's one of the cool things about, you know, practicing yoga is that it ends with everything ends with the Shavasana, the corpse pose, which is the practice of final release. It literally, it's literally corpse pose. It's practicing absolute release in one way to look at it, absolute release of death. So when we look at it from that lens, it's, it's, it's a, a practice, a daily practice of absolute letting go mm. um, when the mind is very plastic. So that's what it's not just laying down for relaxation's sake. Um, it does feel very relaxing, but it is, it is a dedicated practice of letting go of everything, including the body. So that's just one example of what um, th that um, yoga does physically for us is that, you know, it, when paired with contemplative practices, when physical exercise is paired with contemplative practices and a framework for a positive personal growth, um, they can, they can, um, they're complementary and they expand that growth. So we're in a physical experience, we're in a body, in a subjective physical experience, having empowering physical experiences within the body is important. Uh, and that's where the physical aspect of yoga and breath work comes in for me. I guess it was a really long answer, but, <laughs> but, but that's just kind of, that's just, that's, that's one way to look at a, a deeper way and a more traditional way to look at what yoga and, and the breath and yogic breath work does for us. Yeah, no, I think it's awesome. And I think, and that's the first I've really heard about the importance of the Shavasana at the end. And, and you're saying, is that, do you take that five minute Shavasana or is five minutes the right amount of time or uh, interest your thoughts on that? But, and you're meditating at that point, like, are you laying there doing a meditation, kind of like a grounding meditation or like, because to your point, right, you're not just laying there. What, what are you laying there and focused on, I guess. The when when I when I practice shavasana, um, I am allowing everything to fall away. Mm. Um, so beginning with beginning with the physical experience of being in the body, uh, and then releasing the body, uh, releasing identity, even. Mm. You know what you contemplating. You know what is it? What what am I like? <laughs> that's I mean what what am I? If I, if, if, if anything that can be taken away from me is not me, and that includes my physical body, that includes, we're going to lose everything. Everything's going to be taken away from us at the end of our lives. We're, we get to take nothing with us into the next life. So whatever that is, whatever that belief is for, for people. So if everything that can be taken away from me is not me, including my body, then what, what am I? And Allowing allowing everything to fall away just so you can be present with whatever's there. That's part of the practice as well. Um, so letting go of the physical body, letting go of of ideas of the identity that aren't rooted in um, well, that are rooted in rather in um, in impermanence. Mm -hmm. Understanding that everything is impermanent. If I have an idea of myself that is rooted in the idea that somehow this is permanent, any part of me is permanent, um, that's a Shavasana is a great place to let go of that stuff. Mm. To practice just being with yourself as not even a physical body. Um, and the relaxation, the physical relaxation of that posture at the end of a hot yoga session or any yoga session, um, 
helps you ex access that a little bit more easily because of the way that the body's so open. And now we, what we know of that neuroplasticity is at work. The brain is very plastic right now. And so anything that you experience at that time of, of, of greater retention, of greater growth in the brain, anything you experience is going to be, you know, the tracks are getting laid down. Mm. Yeah, I love it. And, and you were mentioning yoga, but is that really maybe a good practice that you would recommend after any exercise? And yeah, it is. Yeah, it's absolutely. And that's some, sometimes I do that. I'll, I got a Peloton bike here at the house. I'll ride the bike and then I'll meditate afterwards to take mm -hmm. advantage of that neuroplasticity. I do the yeah. same thing with the breath work, some heavy breath work, like Wim Hof style type of heavy uh, hyperventilatory mm -hmm. breathing that induces, uh, it releases dopamine that releases norepinephrine that releases, you know, certain feel good, um, chemicals and compounds in the brain. Um, that increases neuroplasticity as well. So mm. that's one of the reasons why that's a, a physically empowering way to, to, to breathe is by doing some of those things, because, you know, as they say, we're getting higher in our own supply. Um, you know, it, it, it changes our, it changes our blood chemistry. It changes the brain. And, um, it makes some pretty interesting. It makes for some pretty interesting ways to observe the subjective experience of the body when you're in those states. Yeah, I love it. And maybe you can affirm me. And then I know you got to jump. Like, so my workout's been from what I've been learning from guys like you and John and Chris. So I'll go to a little Wim Hof, then I'll go in the sauna and meditate, then I'll warm up, then I'll work out, then I'll wrap up with five to ten minutes of yoga. And it sounds like, are you affirming like? doing that's a good kind of sequence to kind of round all this stuff out like around your your workout because everyone you know you should most people have a workout routine that's how i've been trying to kind of bring mindfulness into that that routine of mine um do you do you do like the, something like the wim hof before you work out to kind of get yourself rolling or is that an after workout for you uh, i usually separate as far as the, the the heavy breathing like the wim hof style um type of breathing. I separate, I personally separate from my workout mm. uh, because that, that causes that those, those chemistry changes, that blood chemistry causes some things that uh, I personally don't want to take into my workout with me. Mm. So that's just to say that I just separate the two. Mm. Like I'll do that kind of breathing first thing out of bed in the morning mm. and that replaces a cup of coffee for me. Mm. Like it's, that's a way to jumpstart the central nervous system. Um, yep. So, so so there's, I don't think there's anything, uh, like if, if that works for you, then yeah, that makes sense. Go for it. hundred percent. Uh, I like, I personally just like to separate it, uh, myself because, um, I like, I like to lead into relaxation from the Wim Hof stuff. So I don't want to go straight into my workout from there. Uh, anyway, that's just a personal preference for me. So uh, you go Wim Hof into your relaxation meditations and such. Yeah, it kind of set it kind of sets the stage for me. It kind of sets the, breathing like that sets the stage for me um, to go into some really deep meditative states. Mm. Um, so I'll, I'll take it that direction usually. Um, but it, it makes sense because it is jumpstarting the nervous system. One hundred percent, it activates the sympathetic nervous system to breathe like that. Uh, so um, that's that's definitely what you want to do when you're working out. You ha you have to bring the the CNS up. So <laughs> it makes sense to 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 organize it like that. Yeah, no, um, well, I found it really amplifies my workout. And I guess to the point, like you said, it's it substitutes a cup of coffee for you. Like I do it before my warm-up. And um and like I say, I've been doing some meditation after that just to kind of get in a zone. But uh it it really I feels to me it brings some value to 
my output, I'll say, of my workout. But this mm. part here, the Shavasana there at the end, I want to kind of bring that in because I, I, I understand what you're saying, the benefit yeah. of, of doing that. So, Yeah, and I, I'd say like with, with meditation uh, of, of any kind, uh, whatever, whatever framework, whatever form that it takes for people, um, I say that uh, the, the, as this is a common saying, the best, the best time frame for it is the amount that you can do or that you will do. So whatever you can do, like if that's five minutes, five minutes is better than no minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's five minutes broken out throughout the day, so at the end of the day, you have meditated four times for five minutes each, or even just two times, even if it's just two minutes, um, two minutes of grounding before a meeting can change that meeting for you, <laughs> can change that interaction. So um, do it at any time you can fit it in your day. Uh, at any time that you can take just a few minutes to ground yourself in mindfulness in the present moment, uh, whether that's before, after the workout, before you get in the car, before dinner, after dinner, you know, at night, before bed, like you're saying your prayers, any, it doesn't matter as long as long as, as long as you sit with deliberate intention um, and 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 direct your mental energies. I think that's that's just that's the good part. Yeah, man. Oh, awesome. Well, I know you got to jump, dude, and I appreciate you coming on. It's been an honor once again, man. That's why I say that's why you got one of the best lines guy lectures out there, man, because it's just so much value. So I, I really appreciate you coming on and kind of sharing your story and and running through this stuff with you. So because I, I think it's again something we need to be talking about just to kind of help people find it and uh, and use it. So I appreciate you coming on, Ben. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Uh-huh.